Section 9 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Musicians. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by J.L. Baldwin. Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Musicians by Albert Hubbard. Chapter 5. Sebastian Bach. Part 1. The name of Bach would have been famous in musical history without Johann Sebastian. But with his name added, it becomes the most illustrious that the world has ever known. Bach had many pupils, but none surpassed his own sons, six of whom became great musicians, but with these the musical faculty died. Sir Hubert Perry Sebastian Bach The art of today is imitative. Once men had convictions, but we have only opinions, and these are usually borrowed. The artificiality of life and the rush and worry afford no time for great desires to possess our souls. We average well, but no colossus looms large above the crowd and goes his solitary way unmindful of the throng. We look alike, act alike, think alike, and in order that the likeness may be complete we dress alike. To wear a hat of your own selection or voice thoughts of your own thinking is to invite unseemly mirth, and finally scorn and contumely. The great creators were solitary, rural in their instincts, ignorant and heedless of what the world was saying and doing. They were men of deep convictions and enthusiasms, unmindful of laughter or ridicule, caring little even for approbation. No boomtown can possibly produce a genius. It only fosters sundry small Napoleons of finance. America is a nation of boomers, financial, political, social, and theological. We have sarcasm and cynicism and we possess much that is clever, all produced by snatches of success, well mixed with disappointment and the bitterness which much contact with the world is sure to evolve. Our age that goes everywhere, knows everybody's business, and religiously reads only the last edition, produces a Bill Nye, a Sam Jones, a Teddy Roosevelt, a DeWitt Talmadge, a Hopkinson Smith, a Sam Walter Foss, a Victor Herbert but it is not at all likely to produce a Praxiteles, a Michelangelo, a Rembrandt, an Immanuel Kant, or a Johann Sebastian Bach. What Shakespeare is to literature, Michelangelo to sculpture, and Rembrandt to portrait painting, Johann Sebastian Bach is to organ music. He was the greatest organist of his time, and his equal has not yet been produced, though nearly three hundred years have passed since his death. The organ reached perfection at the hands of Bach, says Havais. As a composer for the organ, Bach stands secure. His position is at the head and is absolutely unassailable. In point of temperament and disposition, Bach bears a closer resemblance to Michelangelo than to either of the others whose names I have mentioned. He was stern, strong, self-contained, and so deeply religious that he was not only a Christian but a good deal of a pagan as well. A homely man was Bach, quiet, simple in tastes, and blunt in speech. The earnest way in which this plain, unpretentious man focused upon his life-work and raised organ music to the highest point of art must command the sincere admiration of every lover of honest endeavor. Bach was so great that he had no artistic jealousy, no whim, and when harshly and unjustly criticized he did not concern himself enough with the quibblers to reply. He made neither apologies nor explanations. The man who thus allows his life to justify itself and lets his work speak, and who, when reviled, reviles not again, must be a very great and lofty soul. 
Bach was a villager and a rustic, and like Jean-François Millet, used to hoe in his garden, trim the vines, play with his children, putting them to bed at night or in the day, cease from his work to cut slices of brown bread which he spread with honey for the heedless little importuner, who had interrupted him in the making of a chorale that was to charm the centuries. At times he would leave his composing to help his wife with her household duties, to wash dishes, sweep the room, or care for a peevish, fretful child. After the evening prayer, like Mie again, when his household were all abed, he would often walk out into the night alone, and traverse his solitary way along a wintry road, through the woods or by the winding river, a dim, misty, shadowy figure, spectral as the sower, lonely as the faggot-gatherer, talking to himself, mayhap, and communing with his maker. In his later years, when he traveled from one village or city to another to attend musical gatherings, he was always accompanied by one or more of his sons. His ambition was centered on his children, and his hope was in them. Yet nothing has been added to either organ-building, organ-playing, or composition for the organ since his time. He never knew, any more than Shakespeare knew, that he had set a pace that would never be equaled. He would have stood aghast with incredulity had he been told that centuries would come and go and his name be acclaimed as master. Such was Sebastian Bach, simple, polite, modest, unaffected, generous, almost shy, doing his work and doing it as well as he could, living one day at a time, loving his friends, forgetting his enemies. His heart was filled with such melodies that their echo is a blessing and a benediction to us, yet art lives. Heredity is that law of our being which provides that a man shall resemble his grandfather, or not. The Bach family has supplied the believers in heredity more good raw material in way of argument than any dozen other families known to history combined. The Herschels, with three eminent astronomers to their credit, or the Beechers, with half a dozen great preachers, are scarcely worth mentioning when we remember the Bachs, who for 250 years sounded the A for nearly all Germany. The earliest known member of this musical family was Wertbach, who was born about 1550. He was a miller and baker by trade, but devoted so much time to playing at dances, rehearsing at church festivals, and attending gypsy musical performances, that in his milling business he never prospered and nobody called him Pillsbury. This man had a son by the name of Hans, a weaver and a right merry white, who traveled over the country attending weddings, christenings, and such-like festivals, playing upon a fiddle of his own construction. So famous was Hans Bach that his name lives in legend and folklore, wherein it is related that oft betimes when he arrived at a village, the word would be passed and the whole population would quit work and caper on the green. So luring was his fiddle and so potent his voice in song and story that in a few instances preachers with long faces warned their flocks against him. And once, we find, a country dogbury had his minions lay the innocent Hans by the heels and give him a taste of the stocks, simply because he seduced a party of haymakers into following him off to a dance at a tavern, and in the meantime, a storm coming up, the hay got wet. Poor Hans protested that he had nothing to do with the storm, but his excuses were construed as a proof of guilt, and went for naught. At last in his wanderings, Hans found a buxom lass who was willing to take him for better or worse, and they were married and lived happily ever after, or fairly so. This marriage quite sobered the fun-loving fiddler, so that he settled down and worked at his weaving, and at odd hours made himself a bass viol that looked to be the father of all fiddles. In Eisenach I was told that this viol was ten feet high. Hans used to play this instrument at the village church, and his playing drew such crowds that the preacher had just cause for jealousy, and improved the opportunity, yet stifling his rage he ordered the verger to lock the doors and allow no one to depart until after the sermon and collection. 
A goodly family was born to Hans and his worthy wife, and all were trained in music, so that an orchestra was formed, made up of the father, mother, and boys and girls. All the instruments used were made by Hans, and these included marvelous fiddles, some with one string and others with twenty, wooden wind instruments like flutes, and drums to match the players, some of whom were wee toddlers. It is said that the music this orchestra made was more or less unique. The best part of all this musical exploitation of Hans was that one of his boys, Heinrich by name, applied himself so diligently to the art that he became the organist in the village church, and then he was called to play the great organ at Anstadt. Heinrich was not a roisterer like his father, he was a man of education and dignity. He composed many pieces and trained his choruses so well that his fame went abroad as the chief musician of all Thuringia. He held his position at Anstadt for fifty years and died in 1692, at which time Johann Sebastian Bach, his nephew, was seven years old. In his day Heinrich Bach was known as the Great Bach, and he had two sons who were nearly as famous as himself and would have been quite so were it not for the fact that they had a cousin by the name of Johann Sebastian. Johann Sebastian was the son of Johann Ambrosius, a brother of Heinrich, and Johann Ambrosius, of course, a son of the Merry Hans. Johann Ambrosius was a musician too, but did not distinguish himself especially in this line. His distinction lies in the fact that he was the father of Johann Sebastian, and this is quite enough for any one man, even if Gail Hamilton did once protest that the office of male parent was insignificant and devoid of honor. Johann Ambrosius was a shiftless kind of fellow who drank much beer out of an earthen pot and whittled out fiddles, sitting on a bench in the sun. He sort of let his family shift for themselves. Heinrich Bach, his brother, used to speak of him as one of his poor relations. But at the annual Bach family festival, when a full hundred Bachs gathered to sing and play, Johann Ambrosius would attend and play on a flute or fiddle and prove that he was worthy of the name. On one such annual reunion, he took his little boy, Johann Sebastian, eight years old. The boy's mother had died a year or so before, and after the mother's death, the father seemed to think more of his children than ever before, which is often the case, I'm told. They walked the distance about forty miles in two days, to where the festival occurred. It was one of the white milestones in the boy's life, that trip with its revelation of sleeping in barns, singing and playing on many instruments, dining by the wayside, all winding up with a solemn service at a great stone church, where the preacher gave them his benediction, and the great company separated with handshakings, embracings, and tears, to meet again in a year. Johann Ambrosius did not attend the next reunion. Before the spring had come and birds sang blithely, a band composed of twenty-five played funeral dirges at his grave, and little Johann Sebastian was an orphan. Johann Sebastian's elder brother, Christoph, who had married a few years before and moved away, attended the funeral, and when he went back home he took little Johann Sebastian with him. There was no other place to go. The lad was allowed to take one thing with him as a remembrance of the home that he was now leaving forever. His father's violin in a green bag with a leathern drawstring. On the bag were his father's initials, woven into the cloth by the boy's mother, a present from sweetheart to lover before their marriage. Christoph was a musician, too, and a prosperous fellow, quite the antithesis of his father. It takes a lot of love to bring up a child, and the miracle of mother-love is a constant wonder to every thinking person. Without mother-love, how would the cross-grained, perverse little tyrant ever survive the buffets which the world is sure to give? It is love that makes existence possible. Christoph wished to be kind to his little brother, but it was a kindness of the head and not of the heart. Only an hour a day was allowed the boy for playing on the violin he had brought in the green bag, because Christoph and his wife did not want to hear the noise. 
Then when the boy stole off to the forest and played there, he was waylaid on the way home and well cupped for disobeying orders. All this seems very much like the Goneril and Cordelia business, or the history of Cinderella. But as Johann Sebastian told it himself in the after years, we have reason to believe it was not fiction. Little Johann Sebastian had been his father's favorite, and this fact perhaps made Christoph fear the boy was going to tread in his father's lazy footsteps. So he set about to discipline the lad. It must be admitted that Johann Ambrosius Bach, who whittled out fiddles in the sun and who drank much beer out of an earthen pot, was shiftless. But it further seems that he was tender-hearted and kind and took much interest in teaching Sebastian to play the violin, even while the child wore dresses. And sometimes I think it is really better, if you have to choose, to drink beer out of an earthen pot and be kind and gentle, than to have a sharp nose for other folks' faults and be continually trying to pinch and prod the old world into the straight and narrow path of virtue. Yet there is wisdom in all folly, and I can see the prohibition concerning little Sebastian's playing the violin only an hour a day, mind you, was not without its benefits. Surely it would often be a wise bit of diplomacy on the part of the teacher to order the pupil not to study his arithmetic lesson but an hour a day on penalty. Of course it might happen occasionally that the pupil, in an earnest desire to please, might not study at all. Yet there are exceptions to all rules, and we must remember that when Tom Sawyer forbade the boys using his whitewash brush, the scheme worked well. One instance, however, might be cited, where the law of compensation seems really to have stood no chance. Christoph had a goodly musical library, and a collection of the best organ music that had been produced up to that time. He kept this music in a case, and carried the key to the case in his pocket. On rare occasions he had shown bits of this music to Sebastian, who read music like print when it is easy. The boy devoured all the music he could lay his hands on, and hummed it over to himself until every note and accent was fixed in his memory. He dearly wanted to examine that music in the locked-up case, but his brother declared his ambition nonsense. He was too young. But the boy contrived a way to pick the lock, for a music lover laughs at locksmiths, and at night, when all the household were safely in bed, he would steal downstairs in his bare feet and get a sheet of the music and copy it off by moonlight, sitting in the deep ledge of the window. Thus did he work for six months whenever the moon shone bright enough to read the lines and signs and marks. But alas, one day the elder brother was rummaging around the boy's room in search of things contraband, and he pounced upon the portfolio of copied music. He summoned the offender into his presence. The facts were admitted, and Johann Sebastian had his bare legs well tingled with an apple sprout. Then the portfolio was confiscated and carried away despite pleadings, promises, and tears, and the question still remains whether discipline is not a matter of gratification to the person in power, rather than a sincere and honest attempt to benefit the person disciplined. Nevertheless, Johann Sebastian Bach was working out his own education. He belonged to the boys' chorus at Ordruf, as all boys in the vicinity did. Music in every German village was an important item, and the best singers and best-behaved members of the village choir were set apart as a sort of select choir, a choir within a choir, and were often gathered together to sing on special occasions at weddings and festivals. Johann Sebastian had a sweet, well-modulated voice, and whenever he was to sing, he carried his violin in the green bag so he could play too if needed. Thus he played and sang at serenades, just as did Martin Luther many years before in Johann Sebastian's own native town of Eisenach. Johann Sebastian's fame grew until it reached to Lüneburg, twelve miles away, and he was invited there to sing in the choir of St. Michael's. The pay he received was very slight, but that was not to be considered. An occasional bowl of soup and piece of rye bread, and the privilege of sleeping in the organ loft, all combined with freedom made his paradise complete. 
he played on the harpsichord in the pastor's study sometimes and occasionally the organist who could not help loving such a music-loving boy would allow him to try the big organ and at every service he was present to play his violin or if any of the other players were absent he would just fill in and play any instrument desired then we hear of him trudging off to hamburg a hundred miles away with only a few coppers in his pocket to hear the great organist reinke he slept in cattle sheds by the way played his violin at taverns for something to eat or plainly stated his case to sympathetic cooks at back doors one instance he has recorded when all the world seemed to frown he had trudged all day with nothing to eat and at evening had sat down near the open window of an inn from which came savoury smells of supper as he sat there suddenly there were thrown out a couple of small dried herrings the hungry boy eagerly seized upon them just as a dog would but what was his surprise to find as he gnawed in the mouth of each fish a piece of silver someone had read the story of st peter to a purpose young bach looked in vain for a person to thank but perceiving no one he took it as the act of god and an omen that his pilgrimage to hear the great organist should not be in vain the wonders of reinke's playing and the marvel of the mighty music filled his soul with awe and fired his ambition to do a like performance did the great reinke know as he played that bright sabbath morning filling the cathedral with thunders of echoing bass or sounds of sweet subtle melody did he know that away back in the throng stood a dusty tawny-haired boy who had tramped a hundred miles just for this event and did the organist guess as he played that he was inspiring a human soul to do a grand and wondrous work and live a life whose influence should be deathless probably not few men indeed know when virtue has gone out of them perhaps reinke was playing just to suit himself and had purposely put the unappreciative lazy sleepy occupants of the pews out of his thought all unmindful that there was one among a thousand back behind a pillar dusty and worn but now unconsciously refreshed and oblivious to all save the playing of the great organ there stood the boy bathed in sweet sounds with streaming eyes and responsive heart his inward emotions supplemented the outward melody for music demands a listener and at the last is a matter of soul not sound its appeal being a harmony that dwells within so played reinke and back by the door peering from behind a pillar stood the boy. End of section 9